Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome to episode 17, the penultimate episode of series 2 of From Page to Practice. Before we delve into today's book, I just want to say a couple of things. Firstly, that the final episode of the series is a joint episode with the Charter College of Teaching Early Career Framework Handbook and Heidi Hughes Mentoring in Schools. I'm hoping this will be a really useful episode for trainees, early career teachers, as well as their mentors and others working with them. Please do let me know if you can share anything at all on these two books. Secondly, I'm at the stage where I need to plan the autumn schedule. I'm very lucky to have been sent a few books by authors and their publishers, but more recommendations would be gratefully received, either via Twitter at PagePracticePod, Instagram at PagePracticePodcast, or via my new contact page at www.learninglinguist.co.uk. You can also give feedback in this way, as well as the usual iTunes reviews and my Buy Me A Coffee link. So... After all that, let's get on with the episode. Here's Vivian Porritt to give us an introduction to the second women ed book, Being 10% Braver. Hello, I'm Vivian Porritt. With Kezia Featherstone, I edited Being 10% Braver. We were inundated with people wanting to contribute and we are really proud that we are encouraging more women to write and use their voice. In the end, we have 32 chapters written by over 40 contributors. We've got six sections. Being braver in the workforce. Advocating for others. Braving the change. Daring to be different. Owning our bravery and tackling an unfair system. Our first book, 10% Braver, highlighted why women-led came into existence and the issues that need to be tackled. Our second book, Being 10% Braver, is a joyous compendium of the stories of real women who decided to be, or had to be, 10% braver. What happened for them, what they learned, and what advice they can offer you. I can vividly remember visiting Kezia's school so we could confirm the six sections and which chapter went where. This was March 2020 and we were very aware we would be asking authors to write, ourselves to edit and Sage to publish our book during the pandemic. It felt like a really scary time. So we want to thank everyone who contributed to the publication of Being 10% Braver, which we celebrated in an online book launch just before Christmas 2020. The stories shared by women and men will make you laugh, cry and catch your breath. 
being 10% braver is all about intersectionality and diversity. Claire Erasmus's family faced a life-changing situation. Ruth Golding shares her learning from being a leader with a disability. Hilary Goldsmith's chapter was one that really made me laugh out loud. Um, and she includes social media accounts for goats, creating a community of school business leaders and using her knowledge as a business leader for getting great discounts for tables and chairs. And she plonked her chair right down at the women at table. <laughs> We're really pleased she did. Lacey Austin and Kerry Jordan Douse invested in themselves. And Melissa Egri McCauley and Jacinta Calsada Mayrone learned how to fail forward. I love that phrase and I use it a lot now. Gemma Saunt Benson and Imogen Senior became head teachers in ways that really will make you catch your breath. And I cried at Imogen's chapter. Hannah Dalton and Kieran Marhill were pregnant and screwed, and Claire Neves and Lisa Hannay became comfortable with their sexuality. And we learn how Andy Mitchell and Kezia support each other so that Kezia can be, in my words, a brilliant head teacher. And thanks, Andy, for being a true he for she. And there are so many more stories. So Kezia and I hope you read all of Being 10% Braver. And thank you very much for joining in. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Vivian. You've given a great introduction to the book. So many of the chapters that you've mentioned will be covered today, but there are plenty more which aren't, so I hope everyone decides to get themselves a copy of this book. The contributions are going to come in chapter order and the authors will introduce themselves. Nine of the chapters have author contributions and then seven readers are going to share the impact the book has had on them. We're in for a treat, so let's get started. My name is Dorothy Newbury-Birch and I'm Professor of Alcohol and Public Health Research at Teesside University in the northeast of England. I was very lucky that I got to write chapter one of the book and I was thrilled to, um, to be asked to do this. My chapter is called Being a Braver Professor. And for me, I wanted to write this because I wanted to show to people that it isn't just Oxbridge um, men and women who become professors, but it's people who've been through hard times, and particularly for women who've had um, had a really rough start in life. Um, and often don't think they can achieve things. And I wanted to show that actually it is very hard and there are lots of hoops to jump through, but we can make it to the top in academia. And I think it's important that we do have people like me who come from a council estate background 
Um, I was a single parent on benefits for a long time. And I think it's important because we have a different view on life. We have a different view on how we do research. We have a different view on how we interact with communities. And for me, it was really important that we um, that we showcase this. Um, it's really interesting because I write a lot as an academic, but for me, I actually wrote this whole chapter in probably less than an hour. I mean, it literally just flowed. I wanted to show that um, it is possible to break free of expectations, although there are sometimes some issues with that, um, going against what was expected of you as a child and and then, therefore as an adult can be quite difficult. Um, importantly, I wanted to show that having children should not... Um, hinder you getting to the top and in fact there are great changes in place that enable that to happen a lot better it's not perfect but it is a lot better than it was and it's up to us as leaders to show the way and I think if Covid has shown us anything it's shown that um, women are phenomenal my team are phenomenal in managing work and children and home and a worldwide pandemic. Another thing I think is really important is that we have to work with the communities that we're doing research with. We don't do research on them, we do research with them. And I think it's really important that they're part of the decision-making um, in terms of what the research questions are, in terms of how we answer it, and in terms of what we make of the results that we find. If we want research to make a difference at a population level, which is what my research is about, then we need to do this. And again, I think COVID has shown us how important it is um, to acknowledge different people in different roles, in different places, and how we can come together to answer some of the really hard questions. If you told me as a 16-year-old girl leaving school that I would one day be a professor, I'd probably have said, what's a professor? I wouldn't have known what one was. And truthfully, not altogether sure yet what a professor is. But my main role is to do good research that makes a difference to people and to encourage and empower women to be able to do the same. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. The next chapter we're going to hear about is chapter four. I'm Claire Erasmus and uh, my chapter is chapter four, Learning to Dance in the Rain. And the reason I wrote it was because um, I faced a very stormy period in my life where things happened that impacted on my family. And, um, and I was a teacher and I had aspirations and I had wonderful leadership opportunities, but things were happening in my family life that were starting to really impact on whether I was going to be able to follow through with it. And there were times where I honestly thought, I'm just going to have to give this all up um, because I can't do both. But 
The reason I wrote the chapter was because thanks to organizations like Women Ed and the incredible um, community that it provides and the supportive network, I was able to pull through. Um, I was able to stay steadfast. I was able to work smart. I was able to connect via social media and, and, and actually you know, be defined by my soul and not my role. And I was able to kind of really get to the place I wanted to get to without um, throwing everything away. I hope that makes sense. So basically my chapter is that we all face storms in our lives. And I'm saying don't give up. Instead, seize the moment of finding new ways, you know, to live in the present. And as I say in my chapter, learn to dance in the rain. Um, for me, particularly, I found this period um, an, a, quite a reflective period where I was able to really see how I was reacting to the, you know, the challenging storms that were coming my way, and um, and I, I, I and I, I that little mantra of be ten percent braver um, often helped me, you know, through a day or a weekend. Um, and also, it's it's a, a it's a hurrah, you know. It's a big thank you to the Women Ed uh, group. Uh, you know, they 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 are grounded in in being authentic leaders, and um and the support network is nurturing and empowering. And finally, um, I think learning to dance in the rain is yes, it's about being a teacher, it's about being a woman, it's about being an aspiring leader, it's about having a family, but it's also recognising that you so need to take care of your own mental well-being and, um, and just to watch out for those signs and take positive steps really to preserve your own mental health. So I hope you enjoy reading it. Sometimes when I read back over it, I kind of go, oh, my gosh, did I really go through all of that? Um, and I did. And I came through. And um, and there were many women um, who I looked up to who, who helped and guided me through that stormy period. So thank you very much. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. And next up, we're going to be hearing all about Chapter 12. My name's Leslie Dolben, um, and with my colleague, Natalie De Silva, we were responsible for Chapter 12 within the book, which is all about how um, governors and trustees can build diverse and inclusive workplaces. And I thought it might be um, useful to give you some background as to why we were inspired to author this particular chapter and to give you a couple of takeaways for your own practice. Um, you will see from our brief biogs at the front of the book that both um, Natalie and myself have been successful head teachers and executive head teachers for a number of years. I, I have 22 years service over seven different schools in challenging circumstances. Most of mine were maintained sector, only latterly um, academy uh, trust schools. Natalie has been um, involved in opening free schools um, and is a highly successful head teacher in her own right. Um, she stepped away from headship to educational consultancy 
I um, have partially retired from headship and currently work as head of local governance for a large multi-academy trust. I also run my own educational consultancy um, and coach and and mentor uh, colleague leaders. Um, It wasn't until we worked together on a project in London uh, that we realised that we had a great deal in common related to our own personal um, characteristics um, protected characteristics indeed um, she and I are both women we both were um, acutely aware of the uh, self-limiting beliefs that women have as they advance their careers and we would often discuss the conscious and unconscious bias that we faced at selection panel and our um, histories of, of challenge both in terms of the protected characteristics that, that Natalie faced um, as a, a lady of different uh, cultural heritage. Um, I faced as somebody with disability um, and increasingly as I've got older, uh, that sense that actually, you know, you, you've got to sell by date. Um, additionally, I would suggest that uh, within, within my experience, I was the youngest, uh, one of the youngest head teachers when I was appointed in 1997 um, at the age of 35 uh, in, in Lancashire. And uh, I would increasingly go into a room and find I was the only woman. I would face questions about childcare. I would face questions about um, my choices um, and uh, totally inappropriate. And I never challenged that. And, and it's bizarre that quite a few years later in conversation with Natalie we discovered that she had faced exactly the same challenges although you know clearly in a, in a different way to me but that that glass ceiling is very very real for women um and in our discussions and in our practice we we noted that we had frequently been brave enough to challenge and to do things differently we we advocate for change don't we as head teachers and I had experimented with such things. So in terms of our power to influence and build diverse and inclusive workplaces, I guess we, we both come from the same um, vision and values, that same degree of integrity around the necessity for uh, building an inclusive environment for flourishing. And I think some of that comes from the fact that we we have both served the majority of our headships in largely diverse um, learning environments, um, largely EAL uh, schools, for example. And, you know, we, we had to um, develop innovative ways of, of working through some pretty challenging stuff working in inner cities to um, counter recruitment issues, to make sure that our children had good access um, and uh, accessibility um, to their educational provision. Um, and uh, I, one of the first things that, w- that we talked about was the recruitment process itself and how it can so often disadvantage the very people that we're seeking to attract. Um, we, we note that you know, schools are incredibly good at being inclusive and diverse for the pupils that we serve. We, we're not very good at that for the grown-ups that come to work with us, are we? Um, it's, it's a new thing, relatively speaking, for people to have to consider with quite so much rigour 
provision for people with disability. But as someone who now has um, a disability and has had quite a long time on on crutches waiting for a hip replacement, um, I could experience firsthand what it felt like to be working uh, in a, a huge building with several flights of stairs and no opportunity for me to rest, no opportunity for me to take lifts, um, toilet facilities that were not great. Uh, and all of those things are incredibly challenging. And there were more often than not days when I just thought, what what am I doing here? You know, it's not it's not worth um, the considerable effort that it takes me um, on top of the work that I do, uh, the energy to to um, carry on with my working. Um, I mean, it, the other thing I would say is we, we talked about um, what we do co- for co- commonplace things now. So, you know, back in the day, I can remember um, having to have a, a bit of a, a fight with my governing body around um, setting up a multi-faith space. Um, and I did that way back in the 80s when that wasn't a thing Um and it, it was hugely successful and hugely valued by my diverse workforce. Um, when I uh, had to do that again uh, in the school that I served uh, in Sheffield, it was much more welcomed because it was, you know, commonplace to to have those things in the workplace. Um, one of the most interesting things is is the notion of flexible working. And Natalie and I have both discovered to our absolute joy, that we can be far more effective working part-time than ever we were full-time. Actually, I, I, I genuinely think our employers benefit from part-time. So what do we want you to take away from our chapter? Well, if you take nothing else away, um, the power of two heads being greater than one uh, is certainly something that we will leave with you. This notion that actually there is life beyond headship, that you can influence change, that you can still be a powerful voice, that there is more to life than the, the school itself um, is hugely important. I think um, that we, we who have worked with integrity all our working lives take that into our volunteer roles as well. Um, and that the, the very inequalities that have been barriers for our professional development uh, provide us with sufficient impetus to want to make changes um, for the people that come after us. And I think, you know, you can use that. You can create governor networks. You can create peer reviews. You can uh, become colleagues who support one another well beyond um, um, headship. Um, and we've got a lot of expertise yet to share um, and to disseminate widely. Uh, and the other key takeaway, f- really, for this piece is this notion that inclusion and, uh, and diversity is a journey for any organisation. Um, we all start at very different points. We all have very different aims. Um, but actually, it isn't a quick fix. You're going to make a huge cultural f- cultural shift uh, and changing a culture takes a great deal of time and a great deal of energy uh, and a great deal of patience but you've got to be hugely courageous to uh, remain uh, true to your own personal um, values and vision for the future Um, and that is something that we we have taken from our leadership journeys 
into our volunteering roles and we would commend you to think very hard about doing the same thing in your futures. And I hope that you have found our chapter really useful in starting that thinking process. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. We've only heard about three chapters so far, but it's been a great selection. And next up, we're going to hear about chapter 16. Hello, everyone. My name is Lizana Oberholzer. I'm one of the chapter authors of the Women Aid book titled Being 10% Braver. And my chapter is chapter 16. Um, it's titled A Small Fish in a Big Pond, Educational Leadership Outside of a School Environment. And the whole point of this chapter was to really reflect on my own personal journey, moving then from a school context to a higher education context and what the trials and tribulations of that decision was and also that journey and learning experience. Um, And as you can all imagine, moving from uh, a school context into higher education was a very different experience from what I could ever have imagined. And also then the role women ed played in that particular decision, but also then making sense of the journey as it went along. Now, for me personally, it has always been a lifelong dream to progress into higher education. I always wanted to um, move into that context and I was very lucky throughout my career that I could work in higher education in some shape, form or way um, through my connections in relation to teacher education. So um, I've moved in from being a ski director where I've looked after teacher trainees within a school context and a school-based teacher training course into then a higher education context and what I have discovered was is that it was a whole different landscape and a whole different ball game for me and I had to really make sense <clears throat> of how it is different and how I needed to rethink what I knew and what I understood of education, teacher education and also then how I need to transfer my skills to really be able to contribute well and to do my job in the way I was required to. And with that then, um, I, I needed to make sense of what was happening to me. And one of the theories that really helped me to think it through was the Dreyfus model, the skills acquisition model, um, where I looked at the fact that actually by making this really huge leap, um, I became a novice again. And even though I had loads of skills that could equip me well in a higher education context, I really had to think of this as the beginning of a journey rather than me walking into something worth then, you know, the expertise, the know-how and the knowledge. And it really made me think that actually every time you move into a new role or a new job, you start at the beginning, don't you? And um, depending on how much experience you have, how much knowledge you have, you might accelerate that journey quicker and you need to make that journey then um, work for you and you join the dots up as you go along. Whereas for me, this was a first real big transition into then a full-time um, higher education role, which meant that I had to do a lot of legwork in understanding what it meant to be working within such an environment and framework. 
And that is where Womanage came in, the wonderful Vivian Porres, uh, with whom I often spoke about the journey and also um, what my thoughts were and how I could reimagine and rethink my journey as well. And um, she gave some tremendous advice and wonderful support and, and, and also involved me in then the Women Ed movement in London, where um, I attended many of the on conferences and events and spoke to other women as well in terms of the challenges I faced, which was wonderful and really helpful and really inspired me then to think about how I needed to reconnect how I needed to work with others and how I need to strategize and think through this journey a bit more specifically to enable me to find my feet. And for me, that was wonderful because having a community where I could safely discuss how challenging it was, how difficult things could sometimes become, but also how exciting it was and what opportunities I had and how I need to think through them really made the difference for me and it really enabled me to enable others and also inspire others and as a result um, we then came up with the fabulous idea of then hosting an annual um, early careers teacher and conference in London for early careers teachers which we have run success successfully um, for I think about four years now and we are hoping to continue to grow that and to move that forward, moving on. And, and for us, that was one of the big learning experiences is how our learning became also the learning of others. And when we did some coaching and mentoring and supporting others, how their enthusiasm also then co-constructively encouraged us to help others more and to think more about the wider community and how how when we became more and more immersed in that particular focus and in, in that drive, um, the more we could impact, the more we could help people and also the more they helped us to, to settle and to do what we needed to do. So it was a really exciting time in my life, but also a time where um, being 10% braver means you have to make yourself vulnerable, but also then being part of the women movement gave me courage to think it through, to strategize, to also then connect and help others. And by helping others, it also helped me to make sense of this really big challenge I had to face. So I hope you enjoy the chapter and I hope you enjoy the book because the book in itself um, is filled with wonderful wisdoms and exciting journeys of different colleagues. And... I hope you also share the, the messages, the journeys and um, the wonderful experience of, experiences of women with others to inspire them to also be 10% braver. Thank you for listening and I really hope you enjoy what we are presenting you with and hopefully one day you too will be 10% braver and contribute to this wonderful story of women ed and how women empower themselves to contribute and make the most of their talents but also with the aim to help others you're listening to from page to practice join the conversation on twitter using hashtag page podcast 
I hope you've heard something that's resonated with you in some of our author contributions so far, but we're only just entering the 20s, so our next contribution from an author comes about chapter 21. Hi there, my name is Lisa Hanna, and I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and I contributed a chapter to the second Women Ed book, Being 10% Braver, and my chapter was called Walking Gaily Forward. Essentially, I wrote the chapter in order to practice being a little bit braver myself. I firmly believe that every time a woman stands up for herself, is a little bit braver, is a little more confident, she does stand up for all women around her, whether she knows it or not. My story is a little bit different in that I was quite late in life coming out as a lesbian. I was already in my 30s. And my path to that coming out was filled with struggles with mental health and addiction. And I had to write the story to release some of the shame that kept me back from being the woman that I'm growing into be. And I think that's really important. I think we need to look at our failings, our weaknesses, our struggles, and grow around them. I think they're instrumental in helping us become the people we, we are right now. That certainly is uh, true in my case. And I think we need to release some of that shame that either we put on ourselves, our family puts on ourselves, a society puts on ourselves. We need to let that go. We can't become the, the women we are, the leaders we want to be, if, if we hide in shame and secret. Now, I'm not a big champion of sharing it all with everybody. Um, just don't live in that kind of a world. And, and some of our stuff is private. But we need to really closely examine what is standing in the way of us becoming the people we want to be. What is standing in the way of us becoming the leaders we want to be. And, and, and we need to walk alongside of those things. We need to grow around them. We need to repair them if they need to be repaired. And we need to build upon them. But we can't walk in shame. We can't constantly be worrying about what people think about us, uh, what they say about us. We have to walk in our own truths. And I'm hopeful that writing my chapter is a step forward in my own journey, that someone out there will read my chapter and, and put on their big girl brave pants and, and walk forward in their own truth. I think that's all we can ever hope for is, is to be just a tiny bit of inspiration for somebody else. It's the whole reason I, I joined in with Women Ed. I think that they amplify all of the voices that need to be heard. And I was so grateful to be asked to write a chapter in the second book. And I'm really hoping that People who listen to this podcast pick up a copy and, and read my chapter and read all of the other wonderful chapters from women authors. We need to stand together. We need to use our voices. For all those listening, thanks for listening. Take care. My Twitter handle is at LHanna1. 
and I hope to see you on Twitter soon. Take care. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. And the next chapter that we're going to be hearing about is chapter 23. Hi, I'm Claire Neves and I wrote chapter 23 in Being 10% Braver. Um, my chapter is about being comfortable and authentic as an LGBT plus leader and role model. Um, it's quite a personal chapter, um, but one that I hope resonates with a lot of educators out there. It's really touching on the tension between as someone in the LGBT community wanting to take on that work in school um, as an expert, as someone with lived experience, but also acknowledging the toll that that can take on LGBT plus staff and particularly students. So in my chapter, I urge people not to leave it up to those of us in the community um, to push forward change in schools um, on LGBT plus equality. I talk about um, the narrative around coming out and how that's not a big event, but it's lots and lots of small conversations all the time. Um, and it's not a case of us pushing our personal lives or some kind of agenda. It's just being able to talk about our families um, and making those decisions every day when students ask really innocent questions about our children, our partners, and wanting to participate in that in the same way that our colleagues do. Um, It's really a bit of a balancing act, um, working out how much is appropriate to share and considering the mental toll that Um, some of this can take. So being a role model can be um, really scary, but in my chapter I touch on some of the benefits that it has for so many people within the community, whether they're people who aren't yet out in schools, um, students who may see themselves in us as role models, or people who just need to see that um, there is nothing different or strange about people in the LGBT plus community and we need to be celebrating everyone and enabling everyone to show up as their authentic selves at work. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. We've got three more author contributions left now until we start to hear from the readers. So next up is chapter 25. Hello, my name's Imogen Senior and I wrote chapter 25, Slaying the Dragon of Imposter Syndrome. I think like lots of people, I experienced imposter syndrome, although unconsciously, all the way through my education and through the beginning of my career. That very familiar sense of feeling that I was winging it, that I was waiting to be found out, that um, I didn't really deserve what I'd accomplished was something that I'd just become quite used to and quite accustomed to. And it had stopped me looking for promotion. It had stopped me trying to make the most of what I already had. And so what I then found myself in a situation where I was at a crossroads and if I didn't try to tackle that sense of imposter syndrome, then I very realistically could have ended up without a job. 
when I wrote my chapter in the book, it gave me an opportunity to reflect on that process, to reflect on what I have done to try to cut down to size my experience of imposter syndrome, how I tried to approach it and the process that I'd used to try and move myself a little bit further forward. Um, The chapter's called Slaying the Dragon of Imposter Syndrome and I think in reality what I've really done is cut it down to size. I hope that people who read the chapter get a sense of the process that I used in order to try to tackle it for myself and maybe it gives an insight into how that might help other people or what processes they might find useful to do the same thing. I think that it's very common for us to experience imposter syndrome but it's not necessary and I think realising that everybody experiences that on some to some extent is a really important step and how we can use a process of Thinking about our achievements, analysing what we've done and really putting things into perspective, I think is is a useful and important way to try and do something about it. So I hope that my chapter is useful and I hope that it helps people to maybe reflect on what they might want to do in order to try to cut it down to size. So thank you very much. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Two more authors to go now, and next up is Chapter 26. Hello, I'm Dr. Jacinta Calzada Marone, um, and my name is Dr. Melissa Agri McCauley. And we are the authors of um, Chapter 26 and Being 10% Braver. Our chapter title is Moving Mindsets and Failing Forward. So today we're going to tell you a little bit about why we wrote this chapter. Um, and why we submitted it to be a part of the Women Ed book. Um, Most of our, I mean, most of it's right in the title there, you know, what failing forward is to us is really, you know, not letting the, not letting the bad things that happen and the negative things that happen um, really sway you from going after what you want. You know, you really need to think about what dreams, what goals you have. And when you don't accomplish them right away, um, you know, those are not, those are not failures. Those are, those are setbacks. You know, we call those failing forward. So what that means is, you know, you don't get the job. Um, maybe, you know, some big project happens and it, it, it doesn't go your way. Um, instead of throwing in the towel and quitting, you know, you, you learn from that experience, you pick yourself up, you know, the old sayings of dust yourself off, get back on the horse, you know, all those, all those things that, you know, grandparents used to say, um, you know, you, you move forward. You, you pick yourself up and you move forward after what you want. So you learn from it, you grow from it, um, and we call that failing forward. Uh, that's really a big part of why this, what this chapter is all about. Um, so part of our experiences, which were very different, but my experience, uh, I did not have any female leaders who, who really helped me along the way, who supported me, who uh, pushed me into leadership. I did not have any of that. I had female women uh, who were friends and colleagues, but nobody that pushed me into leadership. So for me, I, it was just a lack of, uh, I was surrounded by men. Um, you know, all, all the leadership around me was male roles, uh, male role models for me. So I didn't really have anyone to, to push me forward. So I had to learn from myself and, and pick up, uh, pick myself up and learn from my own mistakes and fail forward in that, in that way. So that was kind of like the mental model shift that we had to have. Uh, so Dr. Uh, Jacinta had a little bit of a, a different experience. You want to go ahead and share? Yes. Um, within my experience, like Melissa said, was a bit different. Um, whereas Melissa, th- the leaders that surrounded Melissa were um, mostly uh, male. Um, the, the leaders that surrounded me were mostly women leaders. Um, 
And, you know, although, uh, I guess within my own experience, although I would hope to have, um, other women leaders inspire me and push me forward and mentor me. I, I actually didn't have that as an experience. Um, um, personally, I felt that many of the female leaders who surrounded me were somewhat intimidated by me. Um, I've always uh, been very tenacious and ambitious, um, have more educational experience than um, actual work experience. And sometimes um, I felt that my my educational experience uh, really intimidated uh, the other leaders that were around me um, and uh, which led me to write about uh, the queen bee phenomenon um, where uh, other women are, which the queen bee phenomenon is when other women are intimidated um, just by the women who, who surround them um, and who have the ability to, to do the same work that they do. Um, and I mean, I, I think it's, you know, this chapter is really about, even though, you know, our stories were were so different, which is why we decided to kind of pair up and write this together. You know, we ended up in the same spot. We both felt, uh, you know, we were not supported. Uh, there, were, there were setbacks in our lives. You know, people were not pushing us, whether it was the lack of it or, you know, the, um, uh, the, the women who may have felt uh, intimidated you know, um, we were both kind of in the same, the same situation. So the failing forward and shifting our mental models was really what we both did on our own, uh, to get where we wanted to go and to go after the things we wanted to achieve. So I think that the main part of this chapter is that we hope we connect with is, is, is the women that are just trying to figure out where they belong and how to get there and, and not letting these setbacks stop them. And, you know, and, and throughout the book, uh, the imposter syndrome is spoken of and uh, l- lack of confidence. And, you know, all these things are, that's the message throughout the whole book. And we kind of echo that in, in our chapter as well, you know, just really not letting things stop you and, and being proud of who you are and feeling confident in who you are and what you want to do and what you're, what you're capable of. So regardless of people holding you, not holding you or holding you back, uh, you got this, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of failing forward. Jacinta, do you want anything to add to that? No, basically you covered it all. We just, the, the, the message of our chapter was to just really um, uplift women um, and let them know that they're capable um, despite, you know, what, what surrounds them and that the, that the opportunity and the experiences are out there. Um, And that's the whole notion of failing forward. Um, even though we may feel like failures in the moment, that's not that sh- that shouldn't inhibit us or prohibit us from um, achieving our ultimate goals. Yes, fantastic. That's our that's our recap of of our chapter. And you know, um, go out there and go after those dreams, and don't don't let the don't let the setbacks stop you from uh, going after what you want. Yeah, have that confidence to be who you are, and and go for it. Uh, Thank you for this opportunity for letting us share um, our chapter with you. Um, If you would like to get in contact with us, we're available on Twitter. Um, I am uh, at Dr. Kalzy, so at D-R-C-A-L-Z-Y, and Melissa. And I am at uh, Mrs. M. McCauley, uh, M-R-S-M-C-C-A-U-L-E-Y on Twitter. Yes. 
Um, and we also actually um, run the Women Ed US um, network Twitter. Um, and that Twitter is at women, W-O-M-E-N-E-D underscore U-S. So women ed underscore U-S. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. And finally, for the author contributions, we have Vivian Porritt returning to talk to us about the final chapter in the book before we hear from the readers. Hello, it's Vivian Porritt here. Um, I wrote the last chapter in Being 10% Braver, which is called Inspiring the Future. Whilst we still have a lot of challenges to tackle as women educators and leaders, I think it's also important to support the ambitions of our new female teachers and to to ensure the obstacles to their leadership journey are removed as much as possible. So how are aspiring female leaders identified in your organisation? I think we need to be more proactive to work with them, mentor them, coach them. Most importantly, we need to plan a leadership pathway for them. We can focus on where they can see themselves in five years. That doesn't have to be an interview question. It can be part of a normal conversation in school or in a university. We need to focus on where they can see themselves in five years. To help me with this chapter, I asked Women Ed what the key issues were, and I want to share two tweets that saddened me. As a young female teacher, I didn't voice my aspirations to be a leader for fear of rejection. No one ever asked me either, which compounded my view that no one believed I was capable. If leaders asked, maybe women would get better at voicing their ambitions. The second tweet. I wanted to be a leader since my NQT year and had to make it up, work out what to do, implement and pay for it myself. We hear a lot of very similar comments from the women that are part of the women-ed community. Uh, It's also one of the reasons why we're so delighted at the moment with our partnership with the National College of Education, because they draw down the apprenticeship levy. So the, the unconscious bias that means women aren't achieving their share of the CPD pot, for example, that's obstacles removed. There are a few places left for the September start. So ask us on Twitter how you can do that. And I hope those two tweets are great challenges. And leaders, please ask women what they want out of their career. Our voices must also be confident rather than apologetic. And in the chapter, Jill Berry reminds us that we can actually diminish what we are saying by our use of language. Apologetic language makes others see us as weak and we need to be more direct and clear. 
I coach and support many women with applications and start by removing all the language that diminishes them. And that's quite a lot sometimes. We do have a video on YouTube of me suggesting better ways forward for applications. So have a look at that when you're next thinking about a job. And we also have obstacles at the more experienced stage of careers. The proportion of teachers aged 50 and over has fallen from 23% to 17% in 2017. So I'm going to share another frustrating tweet. I was told last year by my head teacher that if I didn't apply for senior leadership soon, I would miss the boat entirely. I'm 45 with decades left in my career. So whether you're a parent or a less or more experienced educator, we need brilliant teachers and leaders globally. So I hope my chapter helps us to change the mindset and to tackle obstacles. Our stories of real women's success and courage in schools and organisations just like yours will support and empower you. I really do hope you enjoy reading Inspiring the Future. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. If hearing from all those chapter authors hasn't yet convinced you to get hold of the book, I'm sure what these readers are going to say about the impact the book has had on them will really make the difference. Hello, my name is Caroline Verden and I'm going to be speaking to you on what I experienced with regards to reading being 10% braver. Um, As I've said in past reviews, it really is a book written by women for women. I mean, from the minute I picked it up, everything that I read was relatable. Everything that I read was part of my life, part of my journey as a woman. I mean, the simplest things, which we would find simple, that others don't. The menopause in the workplace, who speaks about the menopause in the workplace? No one. And in reading that, everything I read was relatable. Um, Being someone who, as a woman of colour, the difficulties in roles of leadership, um, the difficulties in roles of people taking you seriously and then finding the the edge, the passion to be 10% braver for me was always something that I found difficult, trying to engage and trying to get women to understand the purpose of what we're doing to understand that we have a voice and as women we should use that voice and the fact that this book breaks it down it really does break it down it really does let you know that there is nothing you can do there is nothing you cannot do I mean being inclusive being flexible being a force to be reckoned with as women standing together as women having that she hero in your life is really important. Having people that will believe in you, having people that will invest in you. And reading this book tells me that there are women out there that need these things and have to be able to find the way to share these things, make those changes, be brave 
there's nothing wrong in being brave. There's nothing wrong in being bold. And this book teaches you that you can do that. You can go out there, seek what you want, move, move mountains to suit your needs. Um, the chapter on a small fish in a big pond, educational leadership outside of a school environment, that is so powerful. Where I'm in a school and I'm a leader, but it's the leadership work that I do outside of the school, being able to empower women to be a support to the local community, that enhances everything else that you do in the educational forum. And chapter 16 shows us that. It shows us that we can not only lead within an institution, but lead outside of an institution. And it's just just mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing to know that there are other women out there that face same, similar challenges in their life, in education, in leadership. And for me personally, it's about having those leaders, SLT, who want to invest in you, can see that there's something in you that's worth investing in. And if they can't see that, yeah, well then be 10% braver and find a way of saying, yeah, this is what I want to do. Empowering others. Empowering others is so important. So important to the journey that we are on. I mean, being able to see the need, being able to change because of that need or the need within yourself. Um, 10% Braver is the book to read. And the gems and the nuggets in this book are passing on being 10% Braver. Those little tips that will allow you to say, yeah, I can do this. I know I can do this. This book is truly empowering. It's uplifting. Um, It's a joy to read, reread, as I have done, and to pass on to other women. Recommend it to other women. You are not on your own. You are not alone. And yeah, happy reading. It's been a blessing to share my thoughts on this book. This book has shown me that, yeah, I can do I can do. I can be 10% Baver. Moving that on, 20%, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100% Braver in my future, in the future of other women leaders. So yeah, thank you so much. And it's been a joy to contribute to this. Thank you. Goodbye. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Caroline. Now, let's hear from Hannah on her reflections. Hi, everyone. I'm Hannah, and I tweet at Miss So Sociology. I'm going to talk to you today about my experience and my takeaways from being 10% braver. Um, I actually read this book off the back of the first Women Ed book, uh, just called 10% Braver, which I really loved. Um, I read both of them uh, quite soon after the other, And that was because I was going through quite a big life and career change, or at least I was having to make decisions, big decisions about life and career. And I was feeling quite overwhelmed. Um, I actually reached out on Twitter because I was feeling quite overwhelmed and I was needing some advice and guidance. And I came across the Women Ed community, fantastic community, such a supportive community. Um, And that then led me to 10% Braver and being 10% Braver. 
Um, I would say particular highlights from the first book were Sue Cowley's chapter um, and Jill Berry's chapter about getting the job. Um, that was at the time I was applying for those jobs. I was uh, in the middle of making a decision about moving from London, where I've worked for seven years, um, from being an NQT right up to head of department and deputy head of Sixth Farm, uh, looking to go back home to Manchester and searching for senior leadership positions uh, back in the northwest, which would be quite a, a new context for me. And both of those chapters, I feel, gave me the kick that I needed to dive in and be um, ultimately 10% braver. So exploring women ed more, I then went on to buy the second book, um, which we'll talk about today, being 10% braver. And both books really brought to the fore what, in reality, I did already know, especially as a sociology teacher, that there was a a big gender pay gap, not just nationally, but quite specifically in education, despite the fact education is, uh, stereotypically speaking, quite female-driven. But being given updated figures coupled with the discussion about kind of like vast swathes of of new mothers or um, mothers with older children leaving the profession, it it panicked me and it it made me second guess all the plans that I'd kind of had in my mind about where my career would go. So reading the second book, I'd probably point to three main themes that I took as takeaways and that have really stayed with me and that have driven some of the decisions that I've made and some of the choices that I've made, again, both personally and professionally. So I think the first one would be, don't be afraid of discussing your achievements and don't be afraid of being proud of successes and sharing wins, whether they're little wins or or big wins. I think too often as women, we, well, definitely I'm really guilty of this. We downplay our achievements and our successes. And Imogen Senior talks about this and how it can lead to, in, in her words, some quite crippling imposter syndrome. And I think after reading this chapter, being in the middle of applying for senior leadership positions, I actually took Imogen's advice. I, I did what she, she suggested and completed what she terms a career appraisal. Basically, I looked at all my qualifications, looked at what I'd achieved in those qualifications, how I'd achieved them. I looked at each role that I'd had in my career, right from NQT uh, to pastoral leader to head of department uh, and so on. And I detailed everything that I'd done, the skills that I'd achieved, the qualities that I'd shown. And also I was quite honest about what areas I felt I I still needed to work on. And from doing that, I realised I'd actually made a lot of impact in my school both at department level, even down to class level, but also at at school-wide level. It's not something that I'd really thought about before. And obviously, when I was applying for those senior leadership positions, it was what I needed to show and demonstrate. And it was a real confidence booster for me, particularly at that time. And I would definitely suggest if you're going through similar change or even if you're feeling kind of unsure about your next career steps or you're having a bit of a wobble with confidence, doing an audit like this could be, I think, really worthwhile. The second thing I'd say is, or the second takeaway tip I'd say I got from the book is, 
that being brave or being 10% braver isn't actually always taking the next step up the career ladder. Sometimes being brave can take, it can be, be taking a step out of your comfort zone or what I thought was my perfect plan. Uh, Bucky Yusuf talks about um, this. She is talking in a different context to mine. Um, she was talking about a workplace that she didn't particularly enjoy. That that wasn't the context that I was in. But I do think it was really interesting how she highlighted that sort of being in a different context and the importance of knowing yourself and knowing the impact that not being 10% braver can have on yourself and those around you was a really important message again at the time that I was reading this um the senior leadership applications that I were making weren't going anywhere I was getting lots of positive feedback but I just wasn't getting interviews and I wasn't progressing anywhere with those applications and it was becoming a bit disheartening it also meant that the clock was ticking for me to make final decisions about making the move up north and handing my resignation in on time. So I followed the advice that she sets out in her chapter and actually identified my own core values. So at the top of the list were actually my personal relationships. So outside of work, I was really wanting to prioritise those. And in a career context, it was actually being in the classroom. That's what I really, really love and is something that I really don't want to and, and definitely didn't at this time want to move away from. So that actually led me to applying for a sociology lecturer role at a sixth farm. And, you know, this would be considered or, or is considered a step back career-wise. And I think that that complete release from the pressure that I'd been putting myself under for the previous, you know, five months, maybe longer than that subconsciously, was really um, uplifting. And Bucky closes the chapter or her chapter by saying that sometimes the place is not right for you. There's no shame in saying it. And although for me, the place that wasn't right for me, it wasn't actually my school. It was just the location that I was in. It was being down south, away from family and friends. It struck a real chord. And I, and I do think if I'm honest with myself, I did feel some level of shame at worrying about how colleagues might respond to me deviating from this high-flying career progression plan. But in the end, I think, uh, you know, like Bucky said in her, in her writing, we just need to know where we'll thrive. I then think the third takeaway thing for me was that the community that Women Ed speak of is really, really real and it's really amazing. Um, when I was actually going through the application process for uh, senior leader uh, positions, as I, as I was detailing, I had so many crises of confidence. I had pits of doubt. I had bouts of imposter syndrome, as, as we discussed. And really, genuinely, whenever I needed any advice or guidance, I reached out on Twitter and someone always seemed to be there from the Women Ed community. Um, Ruth Golding, who tweets at Learner-led Leader, writes about her experience as a woman leader with a disability in the book. And she actually offered me some really excellent advice and guidance on my application. That was completely on her own time and it was really beneficial to me. 
And it was monumental, actually, in the sense that she told me to stop focusing on the black and white of the job description and to start focusing on my own values and if they match the values of the school that I was applying for. Um, through the Women Ed community, I was also lucky enough to be offered a mentor session with Julia Skinner. She tweets at the head's office. And she again offered me some amazing advice, including actually just sitting and writing a list of everything I've done in my various roles. Um, similar, I suppose, to that career audit. Um, but she just explained how seeing on paper everything that you've done um, in any of your roles reminds you actually how much experience or, or expertise you have. Um, so it, it does tie in with it, what Imogen suggested as a career appraisal, but it's something that I've actually since advised a lot of other female colleagues that I uh, coach to do just to sit and write about or, or list everything that they've done. And I think um, definitely for me, moving forward in my own practice, I'll continue to be keeping kind of like a yearly record of this to support any future applications that I decide to do. So I'll just keep a list as I, as I move through the academic year, just adding on anything that I do CPD-wise or even any sort of additional things that I run within my new role. And I'd probably just end on saying that my reading of, of both books, actually, um, and my connection with the women ed community genuinely has been really inspiring, really empowering and really motivating. And I would say that, you know, if you're a woman in education, whatever role you're in, or if you're a male who wants to better support women in education, then genuinely just give the, the book a read, see what tips you can take away from it, see how it can change your practice. Um, and, and I believe that if we all kind of engage with this, this reading and the ideas that are shared with Women Ed, uh, then still we'll all rise. Thank you so much for listening to what I took away from the book. Um, I hope that if you read it, you'll feel as inspired and as motivated as I did. Thanks, guys. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks for sharing your reflections, Hannah. And our next reader is Janine. Hello, my name is Janine Richards and I am an aspiring senior leader. I'm currently head of health and social care, so I'm a, I'm a middle leader um, in a Birmingham school. Um, my Twitter handle is at jrichards underscore j for anybody who would like to follow me and uh, I'll happily follow back to. Um, so being 10% braver, um, I'm currently still reading part one um, and I am up to chapter five but I will say um, that I am definitely um, all about being braver in the workplace. As a result of reading part one, so far, what I've read so far, um, I'm definitely picking up uh, braver vibes within the workplace. Um, my favourite part so far of what I've read is about um, co-headship. Um, it was on the very day, actually, when I started to read this. I was actually speaking to somebody else who is now a co-head. And um, 
it really did open my eyes and make me think about the possibilities um, that are out there because I'd never really heard of co-headship. So reading this information, it just, it, it, it was very refreshing um, and it made me think about my possibilities um, at being a, a senior leader. So in terms of what I've read um, and how it's been applied to practice, so I have literally taken the title uh, being 10% braver and I have reached out to um, Kezia Featherstone and um, I've just asked for some advice. Um, would I have done that before reading the book? Um, that probably not. <laughs> but as the book suggests, you know, you need to be 10% braver. So um, so that's what I did. And, um, you know, she spoke to me and um, gave me some advice. Um, and as a result of that, I have also um, applied for a new role at, within my um, current workplace, so I have been looking elsewhere recently, looking at assistant head positions. Um, however, I haven't um, managed to secure a position. Now, um, speaking to, to Kezia, uh, we kind of got to an understanding that actually I might need to go down a different route whereby I do a kind of side step first to maybe get some more management experience um, and then I can go ahead um, for the assistant headship um, in the near future. So um, that's that's what I'm currently looking for at the moment. Then, so I've applied for an, a new role within the workplace that will help me to um, gain more leadership experience. Um, so fingers crossed for that one. I'm hoping to hear back. Um, within the next couple of weeks before we break up. So I will let you know how I get on there. Um, the book, I would say, has definitely made me feel more confident. Um, it's made me realise that I'm actually not alone. Um, there are other people out there that are like me. Um, I actually came back um, to school off maternity leave in 2020. So literally during the lockdown period. Um, and because I, I've returned part-time, so I'm working four days a week, I was unsure of what my um, what my future looked like. I was unsure if I was going to be held back because, you know, I am part-time, so maybe it's a bit frowned upon, you know, within leadership and so on. Um, however, I've really realised that part-time, I, I I can add as much value as anybody else who's working full-time, and I know that I can do it, um, and it's made me realise that anything is possible. I just need to understand, um, you know, the correct ways to go about things, um, and anything is possible, as I say, so watch this space. Thank you for listening. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks, Janine, for your convincing review of the book. Now we're going to hear from Jill. 
I'm Jill Berry, a former head, now a leadership development consultant. I've supported Women Ed since its inception in 2015, and I'm a huge fan. I contributed a chapter to the first Women Ed book on getting the job you dream of. The book 10% Braver came out in 2019, and I felt very proud to have been involved in that. The following year, 2020, saw the release of the second Women Ed book, Being 10% Braver, and I have to say, I think it's even better. So huge congratulations to all contributors and to Kezia and Vivian for pulling it all together. What did I love about it? I loved the range of voices telling their stories. I think we can learn a huge amount from listening to and reflecting on the stories of others. Sometimes they resonate with our own. Sometimes they give us an insight into the lived experience of other people whose lives may be in some ways quite different from our own. So I felt I learned a lot from reading Being 10% Braver and it extended my understanding and appreciation of teaching and leading in different contexts, including the reality, challenges and opportunities of co-headship and different types of flexible work. It made me think about the perspective of being a disabled leader and how strength, resilience and hope can come from disability. It made me reflect on others' perceptions. So, for example, the viewpoint and contribution of a school business lead and of those whose sexuality or ethnicity may be different from mine. And it reinforced my commitment to being the best possible ally and to encouraging the educators I work with to use any influence they have to embrace allyship and support all those across the educational community. We need to have the most diverse, inclusive and equitable workforce we can possibly have so that we tap into the talents of absolutely everyone and ensure the young people in our schools and colleges have the most positive, high-profile role models so that they can see what they themselves can achieve. And being 10% braver is full of these role models telling their stories. It made me think too about intersectionality and what can happen when different protected characteristics combine. So I think it's an inspiring and uplifting read. It offers practical guidance and emotional reassurance to readers, whatever their age, gender, sexuality, disability, religion, ethnicity, whatever. There's something in this book for every one of us. And I hope it achieves the breadth of readership it deserves. And I hope it encourages everyone to be that bit braver in order to go on to fulfil their amazing potential. Thank you for listening. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks for coming on the podcast again, Jill. Next, we're going to hear from Katie. Hi everyone, my name is Katie Ridgeway. I'm at Miss Meeks14 on Twitter. I'm an SLT lead practitioner in English, um, a Teach First Northeast lead mentor, and also Women Ed Regional Network lead for the Northeast as well. Um, and I'm talking today, of course, about Being 10% Braver, which is the most recent publication from Women Ed. I just wanted to talk a little bit about Women Ed itself before I talk about my favourite chapter of the book um, because I've been involved with Women Ed for uh, quite a few years now. 
I think I first attended um, an event at Churchill Community College in around 2015, 2016. And at that point, Women Ed was in partnership with Women Leading in Education, which I think was a paid government um, initiative at the time. And the session I went to, the keynote speaker was the amazing Mary Myatt, um, who I got talking to and turned out she used to teach at my old sixth form. And despite not speaking to anyone else at that particular event, I just had this overwhelming feeling that I was in the right place. And I definitely felt a connection. I attended a couple more events over the next sort of year or so and just was so inspired by the stories, by the advice. And I thought it was time to, I suppose, live up to the motto of being 10% braver because these people were unknowingly inspiring me and I really wanted to talk about that. Um, I successfully applied for the pilot Inspiring Women in Education programme that Women Ed ran in 2019. And this really gave me the opportunity to develop those connections and actually make some some friendships along the way, as well as giving me a platform to speak um, about my experiences as I sort of moved into middle leadership um, and really gave me the confidence to apply beyond that as well. The whole motto of 10% Braver really spoke to me um, on lots of different levels. Um, And it was at that point that I um, became a regional network lead for the Northeast. I've spoken at regional and national conferences or unconferences and written blogs for Women Ed on the topic of being 10% Braver as well. So my favourite chapter from um, being 10% braver, although there were so many that I could have picked, um, the one that resonated the most with me is is chapter 18, Can I See Your ID by Gemma Sunt Benson. Um, Because I've experienced this feeling so much as a young leader in education. So it really resonated with me, although not to the extremes um, faced by Gemma uh, being in a headship at such a young age is something that I find awe-inspiring. But her journey really helped to highlight to me and remind me that age is just a number. And she talks a lot about imposter syndrome, which is something that, again, I've really felt um, in my time growing into my role as a middle leader and now as SLT. Um, and I've really felt that imposter syndrome. Her, invi- her advice on how to tackle imposter syndrome using the Women Ed values was really uplifting. She's absolutely right. Every challenge is an opportunity. And it can be a real struggle to see that sometimes when you're in the throes of um, trying to convince yourself to undertake a new challenge or a new opportunity and see it, um, see it as that. I think that she speaks for so many young leaders on the the topic that it really struck such a chord with me and I know it will with so many other readers out there as well. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Katie. We've got two more readers left now. 
Our next reader is Krishna, and I think Krishna's reflection begins by talking about the first women ed book, which was covered in a previous episode of this podcast at the end of the last academic year, but it's still fully relevant, and so I decided to keep it in anyway. Namaste. This is Krishna Sanal reaching out to you from sunny Muscat. I have been in education for the past nine years, initially as an economics lecturer at a university, then a teaching assistant, and now a newly qualified teacher. My Twitter handle is at iKrishnasanal. Today I would like to share some thoughts on the Women Ed book titled 10% Braver. Now this is a book that was founded by the women who started the Women Ed movement. And what resonated most with me about this book is the question on the back cover. The question is something that every single one of us, especially women, should probably ask ourselves every day. And the question is, what would you do today if you were 10% braver? And the key word here is 10% in my opinion, because it's a small step towards being brave. We're not jumping right in, we're just taking a small step towards what it is that we want to achieve. As women, we often tend to shy away from the things that we want to do and achieve because of perceived barriers, I think, like self-doubt, imposter syndrome, lack of confidence, and so many, many more. What this book does is encourage us to use our voice. And the symbol, interestingly, for the Women Ed movement is a microphone because the aim is to give each and every one of us a voice. The best part about this book is the questions. Now, you will find lots of questions and bullet points through the chapters in this book. These are the questions that we need to ask ourselves in our journey, and these are the questions that will help us be 10% braver. In the classroom, we are leaders of about 24-odd students. What we do and how we do it has an impact on the everyday experiences and quality of education of these children. And being brave enough to try something new, especially when we're starting out, is quite important. As a result of this book, I have taken little steps towards being brave and towards improving the quality of the education that I'm able to provide to my students. Now, I have always enjoyed writing. And over the summer last year, um, I came across this book and then the question, what would I do if I were 10% braver? And as a result of being brave and as a result of the effects of reading the book, I wrote my first article for TES. I also went on to write a few more later on in the year. I've also started to contribute more towards staff discussions on topics that interest me like diversity and inclusion. Um, Quite recently, I've also begun to learn the British Sign Language. So I would strongly encourage everyone, especially women, to have a read and share your 10% braver actions um, in a women's meeting that they hold quite regularly. So I hope you benefit from the book and I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. Thank you. Have a lovely day. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thanks for your reflections, Krishna. And finally, we're going to hear from Lindsay. Hello, I'm Lindsay Patience, I'm at Mumsy Me on Twitter. I'm a part-time business and economics teacher and I'm one half of an organisation called Flexible Teacher Talent, which is at Flex Teach Talent on Twitter. I'm going to talk about the chapters that I've read in the second women ed book, Being 10% Braver. 
So chapter two, Coffee, Cowpol and Co-Headship by Claire Mitchell and Emma Turner was the first chapter that I read of the book because it's got that obvious link to flexible working and I love Emma Turner and her book on flexible working. Um, and also it mentions us, it mentions flexible teacher talent as an organisation that's working towards better flexible working in the sector. But the two main takeaways I had from that chapter, um, were, the first is about... Um, not waiting till you have all the answers. So that idea that they were being so brave when they were putting the co-headship together because there were some issues that they could come up with solutions to and kind of pre-plan for, but there were other things where they couldn't they couldn't know until they'd done it, until they'd given it a go and tested out the co-headship um, how how that would work and just the the level of risk involved in that and the trust that was required from the governors and and the trust in order to do that in order to be brave and take that risk on a co-headship and that's something that we talk about a lot with people who are working flexibly and if it's the first time your school has had that kind of arrangement there might be just a bit of a suck it and see situation where you have to give it a go, give it a trial before you know the answers to lots of those questions and solutions. There are other things that you can be prepared for in advance, but sometimes you won't know if it works until you give it a try. And the other thing I really love from that chapter is the the way they're so proud of their of their co-headship and how it evolved and, and that evidence from Ofsted you know the way they use the quotes from Ofsted that that say how effective they were as co-head teachers like having that evidence and that proof that it does work and it can work I think that's so important for being role models for other people who are looking at co-headship and that's something um, that I think they should feel really proud of and I'm really pleased that they have that you know real evidence of how effective they were as co-head teachers because we use that so much uh, in the work that we do with helping people to find flexible working and helping schools to become better at flexible working we use examples and case studies of schools who've done it before and similar contexts and to show that it does work and it can work and to help them see a way through um, offering flexible working and then chapter five dynamic part-time leadership by francis ashton I really love this example of flexible working again. I really enjoyed how, um, again, how you can see the kind of pride and the ownership of working flexibly as a leader coming from Francis's voice. Like It's something that there is this really stubborn stereotype about, you know, they, part-time workers don't want to progress and they don't necessarily want to take on more responsibility or or they can't do it because of you know the way things have always worked in schools and she just I think that phrase lazy stereotypes is a really good way of describing it like these things aren't actually always true and maybe in some cases there are individuals who who don't want to progress or there are individuals who um, can't do their role flexibly but on the for the majority they absolutely can and these like myths that are bandied around about how difficult it is and how split classes are such a nuisance and timetables won't work it's actually just that they are just myths and they can be overcome because actually they're just perceived myths rather than real barriers 
And I think something else that really comes across in that chapter is about how um, if you don't offer leadership with flexible working, you are really just promoting this lack of diversity in leaders and this idea that the only way to be a leader is to be first on site last off site you know omni omni I think she describes it as omnipresence you know that idea that if you're not there and visible all the time you can't be a leader and I think that one of the possible silver linings of Covid is that we've seen that you can lead remotely and things that we thought were impossible before maybe actually aren't quite as impossible so I really like the idea that the importance of flexible working in leadership roles because it allows that diversity and it breaks down that idea that you have to be always on site and always you know slogging yourself in order to be an excellent leader which we all know is just not true and then the other thing that I took away from that chapter was just the importance of not just that being a really visible role model for flexible working but also about really worrying about those small things so she talks about that example of um the part-time staff on the staff list being you know second in a separate section after the rest of her colleagues and the 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 consideration of how that impacts people's kind of value how they perceive themselves but also how they're perceived by others I think that's something that I'll really take forward in terms of making sure I'm not missing these small things that impact how colleagues who work flexibly feel in the workplace and how they're seen by other colleagues and I just think that's a really good example of kind of being brave and, and pushing boundaries and, you know, challenging policy. Because if you do that when you're working flexibly, then the next person who works flexibly or the next person who comes up across that challenge won't have uh, that, that barrier in the way and the path will be smoother for them, which is something that I talk about a lot as being really important for the, the next generation of flexible workers. So chapter 11 uh, by Hilary Goldsmith, who's a school business leader, and the title of the chapter, uh, if there isn't a seat around the table, be the one who buys the chairs. And I just love this focus on school business leaders. And I have always really appreciated the the school business leaders and the admin staff that I've worked with, either as a senior leader or as a teacher and currently as a governor, because they just really do do so much for the leadership of the school strategic and practical and you know she describes them as being strategic financial and business experts and they really are you know they run the school head teachers are often just really good teachers who've progressed through the ranks and might not necessarily know anything about business management and being a leader and they gain those skills as they go through but if you have a really good school business manager you know they they do that professionally they are business experts and managers that know about all of those things so the importance of their role and also that in combination with the school leadership team who maybe know more about things relating to teaching and learning and pedagogy like the understanding of how that fits together and the the mutual respect that's so important for those uh, two roles I think is something that comes across really clearly in that chapter and I really I felt 
I felt her frustration in that article about them being seen as like non-teachers and, and just sort of glorified secretaries, I think she describes it as. And that idea that people wouldn't respect the contribution of school business leaders or, or would be kind of dismissive of what admin staff have to say in schools. I just find it so frustrating. She talks in the in the chapter about how... Um, you know, making change and, and improving things in, in the sector, in schools, won't happen unless we all work together on a solution. And I think it's so important that we 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 are inclusive when we talk about how we come up with those solutions to, to the big problems that school face and the perspective and the expertise that school business leaders can provide. It's just so important. And if we're not if we're not listening to them and if we're not allowing them a seat at the table, then we're really missing out on an opportunity to make things better. And I think that comes across really strongly in Hillary's chapter. But something else in Hillary's chapter um, that, that struck me is that idea of using Twitter and that kind of Twitter as a network and, and the support and value that can come from knowing other professionals in a similar situation to you or who've been through something and achieved something or might have solutions to these problems and uh, you know in terms of our flexible working um, examples and finding people in similar contexts we use twitter so often to just give a shout out for people who are looking for a job in a certain area or to someone who is working in a certain role but doing it flexibly and, and networking those people like getting those people together to see how flexible working can work in schools that's something just really practical that i took away from the article that that, you know twitter uh, for, for all its flaws as well but it, it can be so effective for finding uh, networks and people and and kind of making a movement so i really liked that uh, chapter 12 um by leslie dolben and natalie de silva it's called what governors and trustees can do to build diverse and inclusive workplaces now, i've been a governor for a number of years now and i <laughs> sometimes I think that the only value I'm adding is just kind of being at the table or you know in the team's meeting and and making up the numbers so that we can be core at for getting decisions made uh, but this really made me appreciate that the kind of power and the, and the responsibility of being a governor and how governors can be um I think the term they use is agents for change. So we do really have a, a quite unique position as governors to be able to influence how a school operates, how a school is run at, at the highest level. And you can do that without the politics of working in the school. So I, I'm not going to kind of lose my job. I have to worry about my position and in that role as a governor, as a kind of critical friend to the school, you know, I should be asking difficult questions and I should be looking at why our recruitment processes are as we are and trying to help them um, using what, what I know and what I've experienced through the school I work at and the networks that I have about becoming a diverse and inclusive workplace. Like we, we have a lot of room for improvement at school where I'm a governor and, you know, I it's my role and it's, it's my responsibility to have those discussions and to raise those questions and to ask 
why we do things the way we do and what we could potentially do differently to make it more diverse and inclusive at the school. And I think the way they describe governors as community representatives, that it is our responsibility, it is our place to do that. And it's important that we speak up to make those changes happen or, or start to happen and to make people think about them if they're not already and if they are thinking about them already then to contribute to helping them with those solutions and, and coming up with better ways to, to do things at the school so I really felt I was quite inspired by that article in terms of my governor role to really change my mindset and I'm not just there to make up the numbers I can make a really important contribution to the governing body and to the way the school functions and thinks about things so I'll really change that going forward in my governor role and I just I just love 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 this book I get so much out of it every time I read it and that you know there are so many chapters that that mean a lot to me and that I feel um I can really personally connect with and I feel so proud of all these people who've you know that sounds a bit patronizing maybe but they they have been so brave and in doing that they are role models and inspirations to others and will make the journey for other women smoother which you know that's just the whole point of women ed but these these books this and the first book they have so much that people can take away in terms of changing mindsets and in terms of practical strategies for being a woman in the education sector. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. A huge thank you to everyone who's contributed to today's episode. As I expected, it's turned out to be a bumper-length episode. As I mentioned before, there's one episode left in this series and I really need your voices. So if you've read either the Charter College of Teaching Early Career Handbook or Mentoring in Schools by Hayley Hughes, please get in touch. As per usual, I'm at pagepracticepod on Twitter, pagepracticepodcast on Instagram, or there's now a contact form on my website, learninglinguist.co.uk. Also, your support in sharing the podcast, reviewing the podcast, or contributing via my Buy Me A Coffee page is really appreciated. By the time I release the next episode, I think we'll all be broken up for summer, but I hope a few of you still fancy listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>